are now listening to Mostly Mistakes. Hello, 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 hello. Welcome to another episode of Mostly Mistakes. Jono, stop laughing. Today we have the highly talented co-founder of Highlight by Amnesia, Courtney Wu. I'm very excited about this conversation. Highlight by Amnesia is an AI platform that reduces your marketing compliance risk with regulators and social media platforms alike. Their mission is to help cannabis companies create compliant content at scale to keep up with the heavy content demands required for effective digital marketing today and to responsibly change cannabis culture. Prior to founding Highlight by Amnesia, Courtney has been a marketing professional for a few different industries and is a fellow UC Davis Aggie alum. Go Aggies. Perfect. Don't don't boo us, Jono. Um, (laughs) You know it's staying gang all day. (laughs) Go Cal Poly. But Courtney, welcome to Mostly Mistakes. We're excited to have you. Thank you so much to you both for having me. I'm already excited to be here and chat with you guys about all of my failures and just lay that all out on the table for everyone to hear because I know that I could have benefited from hearing more stories like this. So thanks again for having this and doing the good work to share these kind of messages with other folks. Love that. Love that. Well, I know I fumbled through the intro, but tell us a little bit about your company. How is it being a co-founder? And just bring the listeners up to speed on what y'all are doing. Well, since this is the Mostly Mistakes podcast, I can let you guys know that we did start out as an influencer marketing platform and we made lots of mistakes as we were building that. But I'm happy to report we're still here today. And what we've now built is something called Highlight by Amnesia. And as you mentioned, David, it's an AI platform that really supports the cannabis industry because I don't think a lot of people realize that the cannabis industry really struggles with so many different regulations in terms of really bringing what we now call an essential service and health component to the masses. And one of the ways that we support them is through our platform, again, Highlight by Amnesia, where we use our AI to scan any sort of marketing content. So whether that's an image or video or text to make sure that it's compliant with various regulations as well as community guidelines. So that's really about keeping people safe, making sure that people can make informed decisions around cannabis without thinking that it's going to cure every ailment they have on the planet. Because one of the things we look for are things like false health claims. But yeah, it's really there to try to keep communities and companies alike accountable for what they put out there in the community around cannabis. Love that. We're going to jump into our first segment called Failing Forward. The idea behind this is that it's okay to fail as long as you are getting better each time you fail. So why do you think failure is important? I think failure is important because I actually was very anti-failure for a long time. And I think that you know the types of opportunities that I missed because I was so afraid of failing. I missed a lot of chances. And I would say it's not a failure because ultimately I got here in the end to start and found something like Amnesia with my co-founder. But one of the great failures that I have is I think I could have done this sooner. I think, you know, again, whereas I'm really happy that I got the experience that I have that now informs what I do, I still think that I could have done, you know, this when I was younger, maybe when I had, you know, twice the amount of energy that I have today but maybe half the wisdom. So, But reality is I think as someone who growing up, failure for me was something that wasn't even a possibility. I wasn't allowed to fail. You know, I was really raised in a home where failure was not something that was, you know, permitted. And, you know, I remember getting something like an A minus in math and my mom saying, well, if you were an A minus student, then I would expect that of you, but you're not. So I expect the A. So, you know, again, failure, that was even failure. So, one of the core things that I've really benefited in my life is that I've had this great mentor who really helped me actually with specifically the concept of failure. And that is the reason I'm here today. And so for me, again, the most important feature or thing about failure is that no one else can teach it to you. That's something that you just really have to go through those paces on your own. And I will tell you, my mentor talked to me for maybe three years before I was willing to kind of jump off that cliff, right? And even then I was pushed kicking and screaming. And so, and now that I've done that, yes, it was a little bit painful. The fall wasn't great, but I have had more opportunities in my life. I've had more chances and more imagination, if you will, even about what's even within the realm of possibility because I'm now open to failure. So I think actually my greatest failure is to not have tried to fail. So 
Wow, love that. I kind of got chills while you were speaking when you're talking about your mom and bringing that A minus home. I grew up in a Nigerian household, and for anyone that is Nigerian that is listening to this, I can relate very much so to that. So tell us a little bit about some of the opportunities that you missed because you're afraid of taking chances. I think it's, again, going back to that realm of imagination. I grew up, so maybe similar, but I grew up in a Chinese household, and so Because failure, and I would say this is almost even just part of my experience as an Asian American, is that for my family, failure wasn't a realm of possibility. And they pushed me into things like the sciences. They pushed me into very kind of discreet and, you know, known paths moving forward because there wasn't a chance at failure, right? It's very much kind of in some capacity, we know that it's not true, but in some capacity thought of as a meritocracy, if you will, in getting there. And because that was all I could ever think of, my career was always focused on that. And instead, you know, I, again, I'm so lucky now and I'm very glad of all the kind of twists and turns my career made to kind of get me to where I am now. But so much of that time was spent living someone else's life, living someone else's dream of, you know, being the person that is within those really kind of narrow definitions of success. So right now I'm founding this cannabis company that is the intersection of regulations, public health, you know, cannabis and kind of quote unquote, you know, age restricted products. It's fragmented regulatory environments, all these things I'm passionate about. But had you told me that there was even this chance to explore a career like this sooner, I think, you know, before, it, it, that is to me those opportunities missed because that passion, I spent so many years looking for something that would make me feel the way that amnesia makes me feel today. And I remember being miserable for so long trying to figure out what that was. And the only thing I could think of was the constraints that I was grown up with. A quick follow-up question to that, Courtney. So yeah. the same journey that you had to take, right, to get out, take more chances, Did it take some convincing to bring your family, to bring your parents along that journey to convince them that, hey, this is a risk worth taking? And how did that process go or how was that journey? Uh, Very much so. I don't think a lot of, you know, we very early on when I joined the cannabis industry, I founded, you know, kind of a community group with many other leaders in the Asian American community within the cannabis space, mainly because, you know, there were so many of us working in this industry, but our families didn't support it because, you know, there are a lot of communities, especially with, and and I can speak to the Chinese American community in the Bay Area, but they were some of the most vocal coming out against regulations of cannabis. And we had to really go out there and convince them that, hey, you know, actually it's safer to regulate. These are really important aspects to the community in that way. And I think to make it more palatable to my family was to say that I was working along the lines of like, I was still in the tech side. I was still doing the marketing side. I think that made it easier for them. That being said, they were a little bit, you know, they actually didn't take as much issue with the cannabis stuff, but they really took issue with the, again, the failure part. They were, you know, they really actually were mostly concerned with, you know, what happens if you fail and you can't get a job now because you've worked within the cannabis industry. And again, so it's almost as if failure was inevitable, but not seen as a positive thing that, you know, failure was the end of the sentence and that there's nothing after that. And like you guys said, I love this concept that you guys have of failing forward because you actually, there's another half of that equation, but I felt like I was kind of really focused on only the first part of that. And so one of the things that someone else had told me to do was to kind of sit down with them and do negative priming, you know, where I said that, you know, look, if this happens, what is the ultimate thing? If this whole experience fails, what really would be the worst of it? Yes, it will be painful as it happens, but really what ends up being the other side? It's not as bad as people really think it is. (laughs) And that's also something I've had to learn is like, if you take away all of that, how bad is it really? A hundred percent. There's nothing like making a decision on your career and then thinking about your parents and (laughs) thinking through like, how am I going to frame this in a way that's going to make sense for them? So that resonated with me as well. Going back to your career journey, because you're in cannabis now, but you've worked in multiple different industries along the way. What were some of like the key bumps and bruises that you had while you were making these transitions and what were your biggest takeaways? That's a great question. I think, you know, we have a few interns in the organization and that's often the question they ask. And my kind of journey to foundership looks very different to my co-founder, right? My co-founder has been always a serial entrepreneur. He's embraced this concept of failure early on and I didn't. 
My career in the beginning was really focused on public health. And so I still very passionate about public health. And again, as I think you guys can hear in the mission of what we do, that's part of why we care about what we do. So I was very passionate about public health and I ended up moving overseas to the UK to pursue my master's in that and really understand the impact of public health on society and looking at regulations around public health and how that impacted access to care. And that's always, and that's still, again, to this day, my passion. But I graduated from that program at the top of the 2008 recession, and no one was spending on preventative health care at that time. And it was really difficult to find a job. You know, again, as a foreigner, I wasn't qualified in the same ways with my experience having been at Planned Parenthood before. They didn't care about that so much. You know, I didn't have the same types of qualifications as they required, but at the same time, they also just weren't hiring. There was no money being allocated to that. and. I ended up working at Poker Stars, and I know this sounds crazy, and it's not the most glamorous or sexy story, but ultimately I got that job because I was willing to be a temp. I was looking for work, and I just was like, I got a temp. I have to pay the bills, and I'm going to do what I have to do. And you know, people were saying things like, you have so many degrees. Why are you temping? And I'm like, it's a recession. You do what you got to do, right? And so, and I didn't want to move back home. I wanted to be able to try and make it out there. And being a student in the UK is different to working there. And so I was really determined. I ended up being a temp at Poker Stars and still applying for jobs in public health. And, you know, the pro and celebrity marketing department opened up a position and I ended up going for it as a permanent role. And the lesson for me, and I remember at that point, you know, being really stressed. I was, again, very Chinese in my upbringing that, you know, I was destined to be a doctor from the age of like three years old is what they wanted for me. And so not having this clarity, it was like, no, I, I did public health and now I'm supposed to then go into public health. I'm supposed to now go into policy. I had this all mapped out. I wanted to intern at the World Health Organization. And then all of this kind of blew up. And, you know, here I was at Poker Stars, which was something that was so different. You know, first of all, it's private. It's not even public. And, you know, what was this? And I realized I had to just embrace it. And that's what I had to learn is that you can plan everything you want in this world from the age of three years old, and you can get to 24, 25, graduate from your master's and think that you have done, you have dotted every I and crossed every T to get to where you actually wanted to go or where you thought you wanted to go. And the world sometimes still, it is what it is, right? Things happen. And you have to be able to then pivot and be flexible. And that was really hard for me, to be honest, at that point in my life. But it did teach me a really important lesson. Good quote. Love that. Now, let's fast forward a little bit to now. So you go through all of those changes. You figure out in your head that you're going to go down a different path than what your kind of parents set out for you, right? Right. Uh, And then you become a co-founder of a company and become a CEO. So I want you to reflect back on being an employee and working for someone and the mistakes you made there versus now making mistakes in your current position. How is that different? And what have you learned from making mistakes in each of those positions? I appreciate it. And I think, you know, I feel like I'm using a cop-out answer here, but I feel like every mistake is, I now feel more comfortable in hindsight, of course, it's never fun when you're going through it potentially, but I feel like every mistake also always has a good side to it. And one of the mistakes that I made when I was an employee was that I always worked too hard. I know that sounds crazy, but you know, every single one of my bosses has always said that you're going to burn yourself out. They would always actively tell me to stop working. You know, it was something like, I'll give an example. When I was at Planned Parenthood, our grant mandate was that we had to teach something like 250 students and I taught 2,500 instead. So it was those kinds of things where, you know, I would exhaust myself because pride of work was really important to me. And, you know, again, at least, especially in Planned Parenthood, so passionate about what I was doing. But even at Poker Stars, I love gaming and I'm an avid gamer, but I wasn't a poker player. I still worked that hard because for me, that's really important. And again, to me, that is a mistake because I gave so much energy away to an organization ultimately that, you know, which I benefited a lot from too. So let make no mistake, but at the same time, it wasn't my own company. It wasn't something putting work towards things that were investing really in my my future and my career in the way that I think a lot of people think about that now today. But at the same time, the other side of that mistake, if you will, is that I learned so much more because I was willing to say yes to more work. So that meant that all those things that I said yes, all those long hours, which, you know, to be honest, I pay for today to some extent with my health. Like I 
have earned so much wisdom and knowledge out of it as well. That being said, I did it. It's not the same type you need as a founder. You know, some of it is the same, right? You know, making sure that you treat people well, making sure you help understand the organization you're in. But ultimately, one of the transitions that was hard for me that I then started making mistakes as a founder was that, you know, I was really kind of so focused on, and actually I was slow to it. (laughs) Our VCs have actually kind of said that they were going to insist, but slow to really saying that I am going to be the boss here for the whole organization. I think that's also hard as, to be really frank, a woman to kind of take over an organization like this or to launch an organization like this and get buy-in when it's so difficult. But you know, because I was so used to being this kind of heavy producer of work, I really took too long to start trusting my own team members and delegating work to them because I felt that for me to be an expert, I had to do everything. And what I didn't realize is that at this point, I need to trust my team to be the experts and have trust in them and help them become experts. And then they help me to kind of stay up to date with everything. And we all work together in this way. And it's really, you know, something where we all get to share our talents, but also recognizing that I'm at a different stage in my career than they are. And my job is more to support them and help them than it is to do all the work on my own. I think that's a common problem with like a lot of people that are high achievers in their jobs and transitioning into roles, whether it be management or their director or the CEO of a company is just like figuring out that balance, figuring out how to delegate effectively, figuring out how to trust. But once they do it, things usually go the right way. Thanks. So it's good to see. <laughs> yeah, fingers. Uh, I'm still learning it. I'm still learning it. <laughs> So Dave and I, the recruiters that we are, of course, we have to put our talent acquisition hat. So I want to ask you a few questions just to give some interview advice to the listeners. So to start, like, what are the most common pitfalls of potential candidates that you interview? First and foremost, I would love your advice on recruiting because that's always one of the hardest things to do as a founder is to recruit quality talent. Just to be real, it is actually the biggest challenge that founders have. And so appreciate the work that you guys are doing. Really for us in that hiring process is people not really being honest about where their limitations are. And I think it's really sad that people don't get to say that they have limitations and for that to be okay. And that, you know, one thing is to say that this is not my strength. And again, maybe limitations is the wrong word because I don't like this idea of putting limits on people, but, you know, maybe that this is maybe not their strength and that's okay. And being really honest with it, not one of those fake answers that's like, you know, I work too hard and then, you know, that's a, yeah, okay, great. That's a weakness slash strength. We get it. Right. But in this, you know, being really honest about where are those weaknesses and having that vulnerability, because even for us, I will give a great example of that. You know, we've recruited some really great engineers, but some of them were really, you know, not super upfront about, you know, certain scoping aspects, right? And it's like, look, we are okay if there are elements that cannot be achieved. And it's okay to be honest about that. The idea is that none of us are perfect. That's why we have teams, right? (laughs) Because like some of us are strong at some things and some of us aren't. And again, we can all get better in the parts that we're not so strong at, but maybe that's never going to be our best thing, right? And that's okay. And again, I feel like we live in a culture where people have to be good at everything. And that's just unrealistic. And that puts so much pressure on people within the organization. I think it puts pressure on people in an interview that's false. And you don't really get a real sense of like who this person is when you work with them, because again, everyone's going to have a weakness. And so I would love if we could create a culture where people are honest about it and it's a safe place to be honest about it. Because some weaknesses are not going to be deal breakers for different roles, right? So and you wow. guys know that better than I do. So. God, I couldn't agree with you more. And even, I don't know if, according if you're familiar with the book, Strength Finders, right? And no. the, the premise of it is, to your point, so much of the world is focused on being well-rounded, right? Being great at everything and trying to focus on your weaknesses when you're actually better off highlighting your strengths and really diving deeper into those and becoming an expert in that one space. And then trusting and relying on your teammates that have other strengths that complement yours, that they fill in those gaps. But I think, you know, just historically, there's always been this societal pressure to be well-rounded, right? To be great at everything. And so again, there's that pressure to falsify your strengths, your abilities when it comes to interviewing, but they will get called out. They will (laughs) get cut. Your your card will get pulled at some point, maybe further along in the interview process, or once you get the job, you will get exposed. 
Exactly. And that's why it's kind of like, well, let's just be honest about our stuff in the beginning because then everyone can be set up for success, right? And everyone can be happy in their roles and the outcomes of that role. But if people are being forced or feeling forced into a position and not being open about that stuff, then we end up kind of having to discover, like you said, it's going to be exposed. You're going to discover it later. And then, you know, it's hard for everybody. So Courtney, so next question, what are the most common themes of success for some of the stronger interviews or some of the stronger candidates that you've interviewed? I think some of the stronger themes around like what people have been successful is really understanding what they actually want from their own jobs. And I don't mean that by the sense of like, oh, I really want to work and do this exact job in this exact space. I think it's more so understanding the values of the job that excite them, that creates a successful route for them. So for instance, are you someone who really prefers that you really like to more implement projects than start projects, right? Things like, are you more so someone who's geared towards, or like you need to feel, you want to feel challenged in your job on a day-to-day basis, kind of more the values that you feel towards your job. And I think, again, that creates, unfortunately, as a startup, we have to ask for flexibility within our candidates. And that's actually another trait that is also really important because it's something that actually, again, I didn't have when I joined PokerStars because I was so kind of fixed on certain pathways. And I really had to learn that. That was actually the only kind of bad review I ever got as an employee was that I wasn't flexible enough and I couldn't understand other people's perspectives. But it also meant that I wasn't really looking at, I was so fixated on things like it is X job in Y sector, if you will, instead of really going like, you know, what is the thing that, and, you know, when people look at, as you mentioned, David, my very, very career, you know, what are the commonalities? Well, I really like to be challenged by things that people don't like to talk about, right? These subjects that people find that are taboo. To me, that's really interesting because, you know, if we think about, for me, it's like, these are things that are part of our biology, right? Using things like cannabis, because we have an endocannabinoid system, things like, you know, Planned Parenthood and sex ed. Why don't we talk about these things when they are actually a core part of who we are as a species, as a community, as people, but we can't have honest conversations around them. So for me, that's a really common theme within my work, but it doesn't mean that I do X in Y sector. And I think, again, having people really take a step back and go, what are the aspects of a job that make me happy? You know, is it that it has to be challenging, or as I mentioned earlier, or is it that, you know, I really like to explore kind of culturally why taboo subject matters are kind of treated in different ways, both by society, by regulations, what have you. So again, really looking at more the underlying passions that drive what success looks like for them in their career over time. I think going back to your answer to the previous question, I think that's why it's so important to be honest about what you're good at right? About what your actual like strengths are, right? Because it starts, you can lie to everybody else, but like, don't lie to yourself. Perfect. But, and that's where it starts is be honest with yourself, understand what you're good at, what brings you joy, what brings you a sense of providing value. And then you can actually like work on that, right? You can be open, you can be honest, you can vocalize that and you can provide the impact that like, that you're hoping for. I want to go back to something else, Courtney, you said, I think I got to pull up a thesaurus or I got to Google something. You said a word I, I've never even heard of in your answer. What Some receptor, what receptor do we have? Anacannabinoid? What? Okay, we have all, we all have, all humans have an endocannabinoid system. So again, that's why cannabis works with us, right? So you actually have an endocannabinoid system in your body. And again, no one talks about that. That's not in your healthcare books. That's not in your school textbooks. Again, these are pieces, if you will, again, shameless plug here, but like content, right? It's content. We don't talk about the endocannabinoid system in content, in educational content, but then to kind of treat that as taboo means to then create, you know, a value around that subject that is kind of forced upon somebody and, you know, and kind of, again, creates that for me, again, the passion and even driving what we do with content and messaging is that, again, the subject matter is so taboo. People don't want to talk about it, but there's already data that shows that's when you have unhealthier outcomes, both individually as a society, as a culture, and from an epidemiological perspective as well. And it's just so important that people are just, again, honest about these conversations and honest about themselves. And I think it is actually, to your point, Jonah, it's really hard to actually be honest with those things. I think, again, in that environment in which I grew up, I didn't even have the ability to think about what I did like 
so thank you for going back. I know to all the listeners out there, I know I know you were wondering what she was saying too. So you're welcome. Yeah, sorry about that. No worries, but it's all good. It's an endocannabinoid system. I highly recommend everyone check it out. You know, even if you don't want to use cannabis, I'd never pressure anyone to do anything they don't want to do. But it's just fascinating that there's this huge aspect of our body that we don't even know about because society is a little scared to teach us about it because of what it could mean on the other side around consumption of cannabis. Love it. Next question. I'm going to actually, Courtney, I'm going to turn it back to you, ask you to, as vulnerable as you've already been on this episode, I need you to be a little bit more vulnerable. You know, we got to go back a little ways, back to the, the last time that you were a candidate in an interview process. So what's your biggest interview fail? The last time I truly had an interview where it was really kind of on the line in an interview in that way was I actually was asked how much I know about poker. And I said, absolutely zero. <laughs> Being honest with yourself. Yeah, no. Right? That's what it is. Yes. And this Love is actually probably it. where I learned that lesson. So the lesson for me was actually in that mistake was it's ignoring where you actually are. So in that moment, I actually wasn't trying to get the job from PokerStar. So when I said it, you know, I was kind of thinking this is not going to happen. But I had just been, just to get real vulnerable, you guys asked for it. I had just been dumped the day before. After a two-year relationship, I mean, let's be honest, you always know it's coming if it's after two years, but it was still hard. And I was like, oh my God, I got to go into this interview and I've got to show up and be this normal person and not be this wreck of a human that I am right now. And so I didn't prepare. I honestly didn't prepare properly for that interview, but you know, I was kind of lucky in that moment. They really needed someone to fill that role. And because I had been temping there already, I had, you know, had hit the ground running, if you will. I didn't need as much of an onboarding period to get, understand the nature of the work, which is why they ultimately chose me. But I did not interview well, to be really honest in that position. I straight up, and again, it worked out to my benefit there, but I just was like, I didn't have anything prepared to answer the question around poker. So my biggest failure was not doing enough research about honestly about the industry that I was trying to be in. So Courtney, so you're telling me in the entire three months of, you know, that temp job, you didn't play a single late night game of poker at the office, like with your coworkers, nothing? No. And what's crazy is that I'm an avid gamer even before I joined Poker Stars. So like I love video games and I didn't play any poker, which is absolutely ridiculous because I didn't grow up in a family that liked to gamble. So it was like, to me, I was just like, oh my God. So again, going back to that failure thing, my family is super anti-failure, right? And again, I ended up being really lucky in that case. I didn't do the research into the product, into what we really meant to society and culture, at least in, within our own communities. And again, I was just ended up being really, really lucky. And the reason I missed that opportunity or the reason I really, I made that mistake was because I wasn't willing to and even think about the fact that poker stars might be a viable career for me or that it would be something that I wanted to do. I think, Jono, you and I chatted offline about what's a job versus a career. And that's one of those things where I really was treating poker stars as a job as opposed to a career because I was fixated on one thing, which was public health policy. I was so obsessed with it that I couldn't see this opportunity in front of me, especially when I needed it. And again, that luck factor where... Again, people don't take into account how much luck has an impact. And it's important to remember that luck is there, but you still have to work hard once that luck opens the door for you, right? So just because luck may be there, you have to be open and willing to see luck. But if you're so fixated on one thing, you miss all these opportunities because you're so blinded to luck even being in your life. And so for me, I was lucky because Poker Stars at that point really needed someone to take over the role. And with that temp job, I was ready and there. But again, I had made that mistake, but luck saved the day for me. And sometimes it is, it's better to be lucky than good. And I think, you know, going back to that point of, you know, treating the work that we do as a career versus a job, I think that's the best career advice that I got earlier on. It was, so Dave and I, we worked for a staffing company. Same parent company, but one of the VPs came into the office, came to visit the the San Francisco office that I was working in. And, you know, the company notoriously or just like historically always hires like young people fresh out of college. And so when you do that, right, like it makes for, you know, a lot of hungry, competitive, right, like A-type personalities. But you also get a lot of like young personalities too, a lot of naive personalities that don't really grasp the opportunity 
that they're in at the time. And so you treat it as a job and you get in and you clock and you think about it as a paycheck and a way to, to get a check to go out and party and drink. But this is a, it's your career. Every single day that you come into the office, you're paving the path for your future. And I think for any young listeners out there, like treat every piece of work that you have as the next step in your career, whether you know, you're in Courtney's situation where you're not quite where you want to be, or you're exactly where you are want to be like it's it's your career it's your livelihood so wise words slight message for you all <laughs> Appreciate message that. i love how that it's perfectly summarized and it's yeah again one of those things where you just miss those opportunities if you're just not open to it and every day like you said jono go every day you go to the office it's moving your career forward especially because you can learn something every day if you're really willing to be there and, and pay attention all right, so Courtney, this next segment is called our unhireable segment, where we talk about imposter syndrome. So, John, I just asked you to get even more vulnerable last segment, and I'm gonna ask you to be even more vulnerable this segment. You might, <laughs> okay, guys. you might hear my son crying in the background. So he said in the tone, "You might be crying on behalf of me. It's okay. I can't do that as a grown up. So." You know, as I get vulnerable with you guys, he's crying for me. He might. He might. <laughs> this segment is, is really important because me and John have suffered from imposter syndrome as well, just being black African American managers where we manage teams and lead lead teams. There's been times where we know we're both talented, but you know, questioned ourselves to see, you know, are we in the right positions when we actually right where we should be. So I bring that up to say could you tell us about times in your career where you felt unhirable? Every day. <laughs> so, it's similar. You know, I, I think it's actually something that I still battle with. And I think that I, you know, again, kind of going back to that negative priming with the family, it's like, oh, after this, am I hireable, right? Things like being associated with cannabis, but also because I haven't been so focused in my career because, you know, from all, for all intents and purposes, people will look at it and not see that commonality, right, of what I care about. And so, you know, I used to think, well, who's going to hire a talent manager? Who's going to want that, especially one who works specifically in poker? What an interesting and kind of odd place, but it's so niche that how can you be hireable in other things? And I think the most acutely that I felt imposter syndrome was actually, again, I think it was, goes back to that failure, is the first day I printed the word CEO on my business cards for Amnesia. I actually giggled and I was like, ha ha, I'm a CEO the first time I handed it to somebody. Again, I'm a little bit of a <laughs> reluctant founder where, you know, I really had to be pushed into like, again, feeling safe to fail. But also it just felt odd. I was like, I'm a CEO, excuse me. And again, kind of going back to your point that you raised earlier for your personal experiences as a, an Asian American woman of color, which has a different set of circumstances associated with that. But, you know, I think the last time this was measured, the money deployed for Silicon Valley or VCs, again, this is very kind of amorphous. I would recommend other people check out the study and I can provide the details for that later. But, you know, only 2.3% of capital was deployed to companies led by women. And that's, that's real, right? And that's, that's today. You know, I'm making the difference between like 2019 and 2020 potentially here. So it's not like I'm saying this was seven, 10 years ago. And so it, you know, you sometimes don't feel that you belong in the room. Things like even what you wear, do you fit in to kind of have conversations with those folks? And then when you go back to your own community, do you fit in in your own community too? The imposter syndrome goes both ways, right? Because it's not just, you know, going towards, you're going towards that community to make sure you fit in as CEO, to raise capital, to do all of those things, to have those conversations. And also, you know, did I have enough experience? I wasn't sure if I had enough experience at that time. I really felt like I was really reliant on uh, my co-founder, that he was really kind of the magic of the company. And I didn't respect myself enough to think that I could provide magic because he provides a lot of magic, but so do I. And I didn't, because I was so focused on like, teehee, I'm a CEO. That's such a weird concept to me. You know, I didn't realize that I am a CEO. And that's something that today I feel comfortable saying. I may not be the CEO of a Fortune 500. That's a different type of CEO. I am the CEO of Amnesia though, and a startup and it is venture backed. And I will not let myself, and it's hard because I will let myself continue to be like, oh, ha ha, CEO sometimes. But today I can at least confidently say I am a CEO, at least that, and I have earned that. 
But I really had to just kind of quell that voice to kind of be able to move forward and say to someone, I am a CEO, because I, for a while, had to kind of fake it before I made it. So Confidence, confidence, confidence. Love that. Jono, go ahead. I know this is Dave's section, but like, I just wanted to chime in. That was a badass quote. Like that was a badass sentence, right? Like in it, the tone, the confidence in your voice gave me chills, right? You are a motherfucking CEO. So <laughs> kudos to you. Just wanted to, you. to chime in quickly. Appreciate straight it. Up, straight up. So everyone is different, but for the Asian women that grow up that want to be, you know, in your position, how do you go about dealing with imposter syndrome? Like what tools did you use, right? Because you can acknowledge it. That's cool, right? But you still have to be a CEO every day that you have these feelings of being an imposter. So like what gets you through those days? What tools do you you know use to help you be successful? I think what can be hard, especially about foundership, especially as the CEO, is that you're confronted with failure every single day. You don't get any sort of buffer from that. You have to look at it. And oftentimes, you're attuned to kind of some of the most difficult problems within the organization, and it is your job to deal with that. And the imposter syndrome can really stack, if you will, if you always think about, oh my gosh, I'm just going up against these problems every single day. And my job is really just to look at these things. And it also means that you're also missing that opportunity to appreciate the beauty of what you're experiencing. And only, I would say recently, again, a thank you to your point, Jono, of me being able to say with that conviction now that I'm a CEO, that's still new for me. So even after all these years of having been a CEO and done the work, I still didn't celebrate that, I would say, until about six or seven months ago. I still felt like an imposter every day. I still felt like my founder, my co-founders were more important than I was. And what I had to realize is that I wasn't celebrating my small wins. I was so focused on failing at the big thing, or at least not having been there just yet. And I was not celebrating the small wins that I was accomplishing. So again, as much as I've butchered that statistic, I'm so sorry for all listeners, please, around that 2.3%, please look it up. And again, it's still shocking. But with that being said, like that was... You know, then I had to pat myself on the back when I read that. And that was hard. It's a very conscious effort, right? To say, okay, no matter what, I at least did that. And the odds were a little bit against me. So that's a small win that helped me accomplish and recognize that I have value. And I think it's taking a step back when you think other people are the magic in the room and recognizing, again, to your point, Jonah, earlier about recognizing your strengths. What is your magic? What is it that, you know, we call it at our organization? What's your superpower? And everyone, again, has their own superpower and it, it should be different in the organization. And I think, you know, to your point, Courtney, in terms of, you know, acknowledging and recognizing and patting yourself on the back for the small wins, it's so important to take a step back and recognize like the moment that you're in right? The room that you're in, the conversations that you're taking part of in the same way that you look at everybody else in the room is they belong there. You do too. And you're in that room. You're in that conversation for a reason. And I, I'm not going to hate John. Oh, there's a th bad thing I do, which to be really honest, I actually look at other people's failures. The ones that they're actually, sh I'm very good at sleuthing on the internet. I will tell you that. And I find the things about these people I look up to and I find things that they've been trying to hide on the internet. And I'm I'm not doing it to embarrass. I'm not sharing that. It's just for my own personal sickness, if you will. To humanize them? To humanize them, right? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And it's just, again, I don't hate on them for it. I'm happy for them. But it helps to remind me that even the people I look up to, they didn't take this like straight path where they planned their success every step of the way. And again, as a Chinese American, I grew up thinking that's how success happens. And so it was to me like, oh, wow, actually these quote unquote successful people that I look up to for my career have made also windy journeys and made some interesting choices <laughs> have also made, again, mostly mistakes probably. I think, you know, just that that concept of humanizing the the people that we work with, that we look up to, that we admire. I think in some ways, you know, I think COVID and the work from home situation has helped humanize so many of the people that I work with. And you see their home, you see their lives, you see, right, like maybe I'm judging people on the interior design, right, of their <laughs> home, right? The couch choice, the art choice. But, you know, and I can I can joke and and I think maybe I a little arrogant now that my wife is a, is an interior designer. <laughs> but like to ser in all seriousness, I think, yeah, just bringing that human aspect to every single person that we work with, right? Like we all show up and we put on this 
professional cap, right? And we portray this image that we want everybody to see us in, but we are humans. We have mistakes, we have failures, we have past. Just to echo your sentiment, Courtney, it's so important to humanize the other folks that you work with, that you look up to and you admire. And again, thank you so much for what you guys are doing, because I think that's that's part of it. And again, led to your point with that home stuff, David just saying, hey, the baby might come into play soon. Most definitely. And, and I'm just glad that Jono admitted on the record that he's been judging people's homes uh, throughout COVID. <laughs> oh, yeah. Big, big judges. So we, we're going to have to have another conversation about this later. Shout out to my wife for educating me. Right and give me <laughs> give me a little bit of exposure is to that the do's and don'ts. I feel like that's another world. takeaway: yeah. is we all have to get a wife like John knows. <laughs> yeah, shout out to Mrs. Grayson. Shout out, shout out to Mrs. Grayson. Next time me and John have a meeting, I will be having my video off. Back to the interview. So, staying on the topic of imposter syndrome, tell us a little bit about your overall experience with people being fired or furloughed or having to fire someone or, you know, furlough someone for whatever particular reason. And tell us about that experience that you've had. I know that hasn't happened to you, but what was it like to coach someone through that particular situation as a leader? Because I'm sure that's the time where you as an employee are probably the most vulnerable after you you know have that quote unquote rejection. So tell us a little bit about that. I think it's again, recognizing, uh, you know, that there are hardships and it's not necessarily about the individual, but maybe just not being a good match and it not being so personal all the time. Cause it's really, again, that not necessarily individual, but you know, the experience I had, the kind of stressor was that actually our first full-time hire as at Amnesia was right when we were about to launch our previous platform, the influencer platform. And that's also when COVID hit. And so we were really banking on the cannabis industry spending money on marketing at that point that they had, you know, kind of matured as an industry and would willingly spend money on marketing more. And that's when our product was supposed to be launched. And, you know, we were looking at revenues, right? You had all this great forecasting and then COVID hits. And to add to that, it almost sounds too dramatic, but he was having his first child as well. And that's a really hard, you know, it it is hard, right? Because as someone who really cares about my team, and I think anyone really as a human would care that, you know, someone's having a child and you're responsible for their income as a family. And what does that mean if your market may have collapsed overnight and it has nothing to do with them as a person, it has nothing to do with, and again, that, you know, understanding the conditions in which you're trying to operate it, whether that's because the role is not a good fit for you as an individual and recognizing that rejection may still always lead you on the path to where you want to go. Because again, I didn't have any bad interviews, but also no one was hiring for public health. So what kind of meager jobs there were, you know, just had, you know, 10,000 applicants, if you well, like that's an exaggeration. Um, but, you know, and so what are you going to do at that point? It, you know, part of it again is understanding at what points and recognizing and being compassionate with yourself to say, like, what parts of that interview process, where did I make mistakes? Where did I go wrong? But also recognizing again that there are market conditions that impact this. And I was incredibly stressed. Uh, and part of that ended up being really honest with this team member, being really honest with him about, you know, where we were as a startup at that point, you know, what was going to happen. And, you know, and again, trust, I think it really comes down to trust again, is that having that trust where you can have an honest conversation to understand what their situation truly is, trying to find a solution that can work for everybody. What we did end up doing was furloughing for a couple of months, but for them, that was okay. And I'm very lucky in that situation that they believed in the mission of what we're doing and they were okay to be furloughed for a couple months. But that is never a fun conversation. And and to be honest, you always think about that as a startup founder, because who knows, right? There's so much, you can't predict everything in this case. And to be honest, that's one of the biggest stressors is making sure that you don't ever have to furlough somebody. That is something that I think about probably every day. Thank you for sharing that. Really appreciate it. It's definitely not, not, and I stress not an easy situation at all to go through. This next question is going to be more on the, on the hireable front. So you have gone now from, you've lead, led teams in the past that have been local, and now you lead a team that everyone is all over the globe. So tell us about that and, and maybe mistakes that you've made and, and the differences in making mistakes where we're leading a centralized team versus a decentralized team that's all over the globe. 
There, again, for everything, there's always pros and cons, right? And I was very lucky because PokerStars really kind of acted as that intermediary. When I was in public health, it was hyper-local. You know, I worked in very specific jurisdictions because the grants were allocated to those specific areas. PokerStars is a little bit different where I still worked with the country managers all over the world, but I represented the central office. So I kind of worked with a lot of local folks, but there were people everywhere. And then now we're 100% remote as a team, even with the folks who live locally to us, we're 100% remote. And I'm sure, you know, a lot of other folks may be better adept at this than I am or than we are as an organization, but there are, you know, communication. (laughs) It's such a cliche, but it becomes extra hard when you're a remote team. And I took for granted that as much as PokerStars is very distributed, there was also that, you know, that kind of central place you could come back to that you could always, you know, have this hub that everyone knew that this is where the resources were. This is where you could go find answers is where you could get support as an organization, as an internal team member, not support for the external, you know, customers or what have you. And so it's the same thing now where we really have to actively work on communication every day because we don't have the luxury of being able to turn to each other and say, hey, or even the luxury of building up relationships that kind of allow for fun conversations or brevity to kind of come into the work on a daily basis. I think that's been one of the kind of first mistakes that I recognized within changing from, you know, semi-remote to fully remote, which is you really, when you lose that hub, it's hard for people. And it, it means that there's no clarity around where do I get these needs met then? And so we create a digital space actually in our organization where we hope that kind of creates that. But then now we also have to be much more proactive about communication. So Courtney, this next section, cheap versus costly mistakes. And when you think about cheap versus costly mistakes, costly mistakes, those are anything that costs you time, money, energy and, and opportunity, or sometimes just pride, right? Or sometimes it's, it's all of the above. So for you in, in being a CEO, can you think of a time where, where you failed to do your due diligence with a potential customer that cost you an opportunity, right? And how has that changed like your pre-work or preparation or workflow leading into some of your customer conversations? Yeah, I think that's something that, again, you know, as a startup, you generally are under-resourced, overworked, right? And that is something that Again, my mistake is not recognizing that. There are many times where, again, as a kind of heavy producer, and if you don't you know, really rely on team members, or for a long time, we didn't even have team members, you end up trying to say yes to clients, even though you really can't fulfill what they're asking. Because you're, you know, as a founder, you're really looking to get the revenue you need it. You know, you have to pay people. There are so many things. But really recognizing, should I be saying no to this customer? Number one, because maybe they're not a good fit as a client. Because we have had that where we put in months of work to only not, you know, get what we were supposed to get because the client actually, we just weren't aligned, right? And that's what we're saying. We couldn't get the successful outcomes that we really hope that could be for both parties in that situation. And that's because we were too busy saying yes to them. And it was not really within our wheelhouse. It wasn't something. And again, we weren't really valuing the work that we do, right? And saying that, no, no, this is what we do. And maybe you're not the right fit as a client. And because of that, then, you know, we have made mistakes in terms of saying yes to things, whether that's a client that ends up not being a good fit or even yes to things like, oh, you want this, then we will produce this for you by this time. And that's not always actually feasible. And because we then are not managing their expectations properly, they're upset with us, right? Which is understandable. But I think it's recognizing that if I were to instead just say like, hey, we can't do this until after this time, that would have been okay. But we've definitely lost a couple of clients by making that mistake, right? By saying, because then they're not necessarily going to trust that we can meet and be a good partner to them. And so to be a good partner is to be, again, actually going back to that theme of being honest with what you can really do. So now I actually say, okay, we can't get this for you until after this time. And even then I'm still failing at that. Let's be honest. I'm still (laughs) failing at all of that. But it's something that I have to work on every day because my team will actually tell me you're a bottleneck. You are a huge bottleneck. There's so much stuff that has to go through you, even at this point that I'm delegating that, you know, we're still trying to offload more and more. Right. And I end up being this bottleneck. And then again, that especially hurts our clients and our sales. If I can't necessarily manage again, this is when we can deliver this for you. And again, I think most clients are actually okay with that. Yeah. It's so important again, just to be honest with yourself first 
and just being sure. And, and we've heard other guests say this in you know different ways of just do not overpromise and underdeliver. Yeah. Right. Do not overpromise and underdeliver. And um, recognize when you are, because the circumstances of which you used to be able to hit those deliverables no longer exists. Yeah. Quote, quote. So on the the flip side of that, so that was a cost of mistake. So now let's talk about a cheap mistake, and this is you know really a mistake that you've been able to learn from indirectly. And so this could be from a competitor. This could be from a different industry with a similar product. But what's the best cheap mistake that you've been able to learn from that, again, didn't cost you anything? Well, it's actually not that cheap, but it was our first lawsuit threat as a business. So it wasn't that cheap, but I do think, and I say that because the lawsuit threat was more of an existential crisis, right? The lawsuit threat came about because what really happened was my co-founder and I were not having direct communication. We were actually being a little too polite to one another. So we'd be like, because we really respect each other. So we were very like, no, no, that's okay. I don't want to talk about like, it's fine. Don't worry. That's okay. But both of us were not really actually directly saying what we were thinking. And that actually resulted in there being a hole in a contract for us that then created this room for just mistakes to happen. Right. And it created some exposure. We knew about that problem. We fixed it, of course, quickly. So again, it wasn't costly for us in that sense. And it became more of an existential crisis, but what it did force us to really think about was how we communicate with each other. Because to me, the larger existential crisis as an organization is if co-founders don't get along and they cannot be honest with each other. I think that if we had not actually, again, you know, gone through that experience together, because what we had to do afterwards is be very honest with each other. Well, how did this come about? Why did this happen? You know, where were my mistakes? Where were your mistakes? And we do trust each other enough to say like, look, I wasn't being honest with you because, you know, I felt like this would make you feel this way. And, you know, I was almost, we were both again, being overly considerate to one another. So again, that existential crisis of that lawsuit threat forced us to have a real conversation. So to me, over time in the grand scheme of things, it is a cheap mistake because my relationship with my co-founder and the trust that I have with him is paramount to us being successful as an organization. Next section, Courtney. So this is regrettable and unregrettable mistakes, right? <laughs> right? And so things you look back and you know what, like as uncomfortable as that mistake may have been, you don't regret it, right? And I think this also, it leans on that first topic of failing forward. And then on the flip side of it, there's some mistakes that you look back and you're like, you know what, I'll never do that again. So to start, like, if you can tell me about maybe a mistake that you've made that actually helped you realize a gap in your product or your service that has enabled you to provide a better service or make V2, right? Just like improve the overall product that you guys deliver. Well, as I've mentioned a couple of times here before, we did have an influencer platform before and we don't anymore, right? And that was, that was actually, it's not a mistake that we regret because it creates the information, the knowledge base we have now, but we made the mistake of trying to boil the ocean, right? And I think we hear that a lot. That's something that, you know, founders, and you hear it and you intellectually understand it, but you don't hear kind of, you don't see yourself being kind of called by the siren of building the most, you know, beautiful kind of concept in your head behind scenes. And, you know, that's very tempting to do. And so the mistake that we made was, again, boiling the ocean with the influencer platform, right? To reach table stakes with other platforms, it would have cost us millions of dollars. And raising that from already behind, we wouldn't have nearly been, you know, first to market at all on that. And our main value proposition was compliance. That was kind of, you know, our focus as a platform. And what we realized is that, again, that mistake you know, we raised capital to build that product. And ultimately we had to pivot away from it and into the compliance product only. But I will say that once we pivoted into the compliance product is when we were able to raise more effective capital. You know, that was the thing. And, and we had to realize our mistake too, of trying to boil the ocean. It is to me one that we don't regret because every single time we get tempted by that sirens call again, or even by clients who are like, I want this, I want that again, being disciplined about, no, we are really focused on the product that we build. And yes, we care a lot about what the users need, but we still really focus on what can we actually support effectively. And again, that's not a mistake I regret as much as a lot of people will say the pivot word with kind of like disdain and like, oh, you pivoted, but Again, it keeps us disciplined every single day to not try to boil the ocean. 
and I think that goes back to the you know earlier conversation about trying to be well-rounded. Sometimes like it sounds like we can do that as companies, but I think it's so important for everybody to realize like there is value in having a specialization, right? There is value in being able to go a mile deep instead of a mile wide. You as an individual, you as a service provider, right? You as a CEO, whatever that is, it's so important. Feel comfortable with your strengths, with your specialization. A follow-up to that too, and I 100% agree with you, Jono. Courtney, in pivoting, how did that change how you prioritize business? How did it change like from an operational standpoint, just learning and pivoting the entire business to going towards compliance? What did you learn? What did you learn with your co-founder on how just to prioritize your day-to-days? It really, again, was forcing ourselves into a proactive process to ask hard questions. You know, I think human nature wants to avoid hard questions. We're all human, right? People want to feel nice. People don't want to feel bad. I mean, you know, on average, right? And and generally speaking. And it's really tempting to ignore and ask those tough questions because you've committed so much already. You know, at that point we had committed a few hundred thousand dollars at minimum. We had pitched a lot of people, you know, we had invested hours upon hours we had taken sacrifices in our own careers. And then to say like, actually, we're going to throw a lot of that away. Again, the feeling is you're throwing all of it away, but you still learned a lot. Right. And we still use elements of that platform in our software now, but it really is that, again, just you have to learn from it. It's it's so crucial. This is the bonus round. Bonus round. Bonus <laughs> okay. round. And bonus I'm sorry, round. did that answer your question, David? So it I know did. that was, yeah, okay, good. It yeah, did. We, we it got the did. bonus round. So bonus round, we're just going to ask random questions and see how you feel about them. So All right. first question is, what did you learn from being on this podcast? The concept of failing forward. I think, again, I've never heard that phrase. Maybe I'm living under a rock. I don't know. But I have never heard that phrase before. Because again, I think that's the other 50% of the word, right? Is that people then just go failing and then period. But I love that you guys have this overall concept of failing forward because that is actually how it works, right? And, And again, I think hopefully more people are willing to take those risks if it is framed as the phrase failing forward. Gotcha. Jono? Indica or sativa? Sativa. I am 100% a sativa person. Okay. Okay. <laughs> How about okay. you guys? I'm Indica. Oh, nice. Indica. So you got to enjoy the luxurious furnishings that are being provided by your partner. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and I, I, I like <laughs> the way that I remembered Indica versus Indica. Or Indica versus Sativa is Indica. You're in the couch. Like you're, you're in it. You're, you're back. You're chilling. You're in and it. And you have a nice couch. So that's the thing, right? Because yes. your partner, your wife is making sure you're on the best couch possible. Exactly. Shout yeah. out to Mrs. Grayson. <laughs> she was great. Love that. For me, I don't know. I'm still experimenting. I really don't know. I'm still very, very early on my journey. Me and John were talking about this before we started the pod. So I'll get back to you on that. I really don't know. He's, hey, he's, he's green. Pun intended. He's green. He's green for the green. It's okay. Yes. <laughs> and you green. know, and again, that's actually why we care about what we do. Like, look, if you need help, reach out. I can help guide you through that, but it's hard. It's hard. There's a lot of stuff out there nowadays. It's hard. And usually follow your nose. They say the nose knows. The nose knows. <laughs> okay. I got another question. So we talked about your parents and telling them that you're in the cannabis industry. How was it, if they know this, telling them that you're actually smoking or partaking in cannabis? I have actually gotten my parents to now smoke. So I, (laughs) so (laughs) it was, and not just like, well, everyone in my family practically at this point. But the reason again for that is because I just said it for pain and like, it was just like, you're in pain, right? And actually I'm very lucky because traditionally in old Chinese texts, Cannabis was a part of traditional Chinese medicine. And it actually, for the earliest documented records of cannabis are actually in some ancient Chinese texts as well around medicine. And so, and again, part of what we were doing grass by grass was exploring why that has been taken away from our culture or why our culture no longer sees that as something as a positive thing when we've had that in our culture for thousands and thousands of years. But my family is a little bit, I don't think that I would have been, I think I may have broken that 
for them when I said I was working for Planned Parenthood as a sex ed teacher and no longer going to be a doctor. I think that they were pretty upset already. (laughs) That'll that'll do it. Yeah. That'll do it. Yeah. That'll do it. Yeah. So another question for you. Next question for you for bonus round is, do you have a favorite cannabis brand? Ooh, well, I do love the brands that we work with, of course. But, you know, that's actually something that's important to us. We actually care a lot about who we partner with. Because if we are going to be an organization that cares about how our content impacts community, we care about the people who are going to be responsible for also using that. And so we like the brands that we work with. I don't have any particular phrase, but I love, you know, shopping from Kaliva, Sweet Flower. We just love all of that. And then also just in general, really love Cannabiotics as a flower company and Love actually just in general, some of the brands are doing a really great job again around changing that culture around cannabis so that it is accessible to people from a cultural perspective too. Yeah. And shout out to Flocana too. Yes. I've heard, I've heard great things about <laughs> I do Flo- love Flocana. They are one of my favorites, of course. And actually Farmer's Reserve, if people have not tried Farmer's Reserve yet, you do need to get on that. Get actually when the nose knows. I actually think about Farmer's Reserve because that's when the nose definitely knows. (laughs) Nice, nice. Yeah. Okay, I got one more question. So we fast forward to 2060, right? We're in the year 2060. Where is Amnesia as a company? And what is your take on the cannabis industry as a whole? Like, what do you want to see from it at that point? I really actually want us to stay focused on compliance and whether that's in cannabis or other categories of products as well. Again, the passion for me about cannabis is is that intersection of this is an age-restricted recreational product that's similar to like my poker stars experience. But on the other side, you have this public health component because cannabis is very effective at treating so many things and, and really is a wonderful plant for so many people and is a health product. And so the way that I see amnesia in 60 years is that, you know, we work and support responsible advertising. I know that sounds crazy. It's not, you know, the sexiest dream on the planet. But again, going back to public health, I think we're seeing now today how social media impacts societal health. We're seeing how it actually impacts physical health through the type of content that is shared. And so, again, we take really seriously the fact that content is culture. That's something that I think people are ignoring right now for convenience. Content is culture and culture is content, right? And who owns that and who actually regulates that? And right now, when you have platforms that are just, you know, private platforms that are regulating what that content is, no one's really thinking about the responsibility they have when they produce that content. And what our mission is, is to try and help people understand that you have a responsibility. Content, whether it's used for advertising It's, you know, another word for advertising can be propaganda, right? And so it is really important to understand how content is shared in our communities, what content is being generated, who regulates it, who decides what's okay and what's not, and that people really care about this because it does actually have an impact on community and everybody, because everyone now is in these digital content communities. And so I, again, it's, it's a big passion of mine that we really think about what content does to our culture and society. Well, love that. Courtney, we want to thank you for having the courage and humility. Wait, 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 oh. wait, wait, wait. Ooh. Shout out <laughs> more. Shout outs. Shout your people oh, out. Yeah. Oh, okay. Key shout outs that you have. Okay. Yeah. My bad, Dave. My bad. My it's all good. You know, it's all and good. honestly, if I forget someone here, please, someone has to start playing some orchestral music to tell me to shut the hell up. Whatever. <laughs> but I'm probably going to forget people who have been wonderful because the other thing, again, is no one gets here on their own and people make mistakes together and mm. all of that. So I have not been able to achieve, again, if you want to say successful, I have not been able to achieve any of this without the help of a lot of folks. And so I am leaving a lot of folks out for sure. Shout out to my co-founder. He definitely, for sure, his name is Ray Ting. We do make fun of him for that, Ray Ting Systems. But his name is Ray Ting. He is so wonderful. You know, he really has, he's just, he's such a great person. I'm really fortunate. Shout out to our team, every single member of our team. I can't list them off the top of my head right now, but every single member of our team has been so dedicated to what we do. They believe in the mission of what we're doing. And I can't, 
I mean, we couldn't do anything without them. Let's just be real. Like nothing, absolutely nothing without them. And so I want to give a shout out to Yan, Tanya, Mo, Sarab, Arshvir, Miranda, Kyla. Okay, there's just so many. I want to give a shout out as well to, you know, our, actually, we're really lucky. We have good investors. I know that sounds crazy, but they have been so supportive and they have really been wonderful in helping us as a business. And so I feel very grateful for that. And then of course, ultimately my mom, my dad, and my family, and actually I'm going to just say it, my friends, Benny and Aaron, they believed in me when nobody did. They hooked me up with intros when I was nothing but a rock and people were like, who are you? I don't care. And so you know, they really, these folks really took a risk on me and, and they took a risk on our team and they believed enough in us to really support us when a lot of other folks would have just said no. So I'm um, also shout out really quick to Monica Lowe of Sue Weed, who really gave us a chance as well when, when a lot of folks would have just said no. And of course I got to say, you know, our clients, cause like Flo Canna, like Haliva, they again also have worked with us closely and have shared so much of their time with us. All right, the orchestral music's got to come on soon. But they have shared so many insights about how <laughs> compliance works for them. I just love them. Thank you so much. Same for Grasslands, Human Nature, so many folks. Thomas Jordanella, we've had so many folks helping us along the way. And so just thank you to everyone. I know that none of that might mean something to your audience, but I hope to be able to share that with these folks in, in a public setting. So thank love you. Love the shout outs. Shout out to mom and pops. Mr. Yeah. and Mrs. Wu, shout out to Aaron and Benny. Uh, <laughs> shout out, shout out to all the loved ones. Yeah. But seriously, Courtney, like, thank you. Thank you for having, again, having the courage and humility to come on the show. We are honored to have you as a guest. This is an incredible conversation. Thank you for being on Most of Mistakes. I really appreciate you guys so much. Again, I really value what you guys are doing here as someone who didn't grow up in a space where I was allowed to fail or feel like I could. And I think, you know, there's probably, you know, 20,000 podcasts out there talking about these, you know, sexy hero stories. And I think we really should have more about, you know, how people became these quote unquote sexy heroes, right? For folks. And, and I think it's mostly mistakes essentially along the way. So thank you so much for what you guys are doing and having me. And again, I actually want to give a shout out one more time to Bo <laughs> so, and my other founder friends like Allie, who, you know, I think it's important to find people who understand what you do and, and you guys have created such a safe place for me to share that. So thank you.